Hi there, this is Alvin and welcome to the Kickstart Commerce Podcast, where we share search marketing and domain investing strategies to help grow your business. In today's episode, our guest is none other than Ron Jackson, the editor and founder of dnjournal.com, the number one domain industry news magazine, as well as the founder of his latest venture, adn.us, americandomainnames.us, and it's the .us news and information website. Today, Ron and I discuss how careers in journalism, broadcasting, and a collectibles record store owner led to him discovering domain names. Then Ron shares why and how he got his start investing in .us domains after stumbling upon dnforum.com. In addition to unveiling his buy it now pricing strategy, Ron also shares a few names and recent sales from his domain portfolio and various industries and market segments he invests in today. We also discuss what led to the birth of dnjournal.com, the number one domain industry news magazine. We then talk about important metrics to watch for and use from DN Journal, as well as domain name sales reports in general when buying and selling domains. And last but not least, Ron and I discuss his latest venture, ADN.us, American Domain Names, the .us news and information website. And so with that, Ron, welcome, and thank you for making time to join us today. Alvin, thank you. I appreciate the invitation and uh, looking forward to uh, sitting down and having a talk here. You know, we've all been separated so much because of the whole COVID situation that, um, you know, I, I just uh, really miss that opportunity to just hang out with guys and talk about domains. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, for those of you that don't know Ron Jackson, where have you been? It would be the question that I would ask you. Uh, but for our new listeners, Ron, why don't you briefly share just at a high level uh, with our listeners a bit about yourself, who you are, you know, your personal professional background? Well, I am the editor and publisher of Domain Name Journal at dnjournal.com. It's a domain industry trade magazine. Uh, I stumbled into this industry back in 2002. I didn't have any intention of starting a publication, but what happened is I came in not really knowing anything. So the, the first thing I started doing was looking for a trade magazine to learn from because previously I, previously I had been in broadcasting for 20 years and we had broadcasting magazines. So you could always keep up with what was going on in the industry, who the people were that uh, you needed to get to know. And uh, after that, I spent about a dozen years as an owner of record stores. For those who remember record stores, we could go in and, and buy vinyl and later CDs. And uh, we had Billboard magazine. So you knew you could learn from that. So I get into domains and I really lost because it was something totally new to me. And then I found that there was no magazine. And having been a journalist for my entire life, I thought, you know, I could do this just as a hobby because at this point in time, thanks to the internet, doing a magazine was not <clears throat> the financial um, uh, mountain that it would be if you tried to do a print publication. It could cost you a million dollar investment to do the printing and distribution and postage and all of that. But with the internet, you could get a $10 domain name and a $10 hosting account, and all of a sudden you're in business and you can reach an audience around the world. So I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll start a magazine. But again, that was meant as a hobby, not as a business. What I was hoping it would do is uh, give me a platform where I could go out to the guys who were and gals who were established in the space at that time and ask them uh, how they got to where they were, try to get some tips that way. So to me, it was a networking opportunity. 
And, and the thing was, a lot of people didn't want to share many secrets then because they were getting a lot of great assets. So they didn't really want to invite a ton of people in, tell them when the drop times were and didn't want competition at auctions and so on. But by setting that up as a magazine, people opened up a little bit more and it became a learning tool mostly for me. But then it, it, as it turned out, other people, once it was online, liked it and advertisers started asking about being on it. So over a period of about three years, it morphed from a hobby into what became pretty much the full-time business. After a year, enough people were supporting it that I could spend, uh, maybe instead of spending 10% of my time on it, I was spending a quarter of my time. After a couple of years, half my time, a third year, maybe three quarters of it. And the real turning point was the traffic conference in Silicon Valley in 2006, the first time that we really had taken domains right into the heart of the venture capital community. And a lot of the VC people came out and all of a sudden people were throwing so much money at the space, it was really insane. There would be people who wanted to advertise in DN Journal uh, coming in from outside the industry. They'd say, I'll, they would say, I'll pay you triple whatever that person's paying for the wow. spot on the home page. But I never did that. I was always loyal to the people who were with me from the start. But so I turned down all of those offers. But it was a pretty amazing thing. So from that point in time, I went from being primarily a domain investor, which is what I came in to do to becoming um, the operator of a, of a media platform. So through the years, I have always maintained, uh, maintained that interest in domains. I still buy and sell constantly. It's just that I don't spend as much time researching domains and, and uh, doing that sort of thing as I did those first three years. Ah, then it's so funny because even though in different times, you, your path, my path somewhat mirrors one another to a certain extent in terms of me starting in the industry at the end of, I want to say like September 2012, and then actually turning into, I actually started writing uh, kickstartcommerce.com as a uh, search marketing publication that mm -hmm. for whatever reason, I, I kept coming back to writing about domains. And so uh, at some point I was just like, you know what, let's just see where this writing about domains goes. And here we are you know, almost a decade later and doing a podcast, still doing the blog, putting out lists. And so it's almost not necessarily uh, one in the same, but it, it kind of follows that same path. And so, so back then though, Ron, like, I guess you probably then drew from your uh, journalist experience in terms of you know, coming online, because I'm assuming now that you you likely don't have development experience in terms of website development. So I guess, how did you initially come online in the days of HTML and CSS? Like, did you have somebody that that you paid to do it? Or how, how did you structure yourself? Yeah, no, I, um, I had no skill set or knowledge whatsoever about the developing a website other than and it didn't amount to much. But when I had my record stores um, in 1997, see, originally I was taking full page ads out in a national magazine called Goldmine. I did a lot of music collectibles. Hmm. So I was paying for these full page ads in a national magazine. Then the web came along around 97. I kind of um, started paying a lot of attention to it. And what I noticed was that here you could get a website and, as I mentioned earlier, reach people all over the world. So I said, you know, what if I could uh, cut that 
huge advertising expense in this national magazine from a page down to a 16th of a page and just advertise a website. And on this website, people, I could then put all of my inventory and because of the cost of the national ad, it was limited. I had to, to get as much stuff in as possible. It's just one line uh, of text, basically. No photos. Wow. You didn't have the space for it. So I said, with this website, I can put a color photograph of every product. I can put as much stuff as I want on there. So in 97, I put my first website up for my record store. And it was also a global mail order business. So I would advertise that site in the collector's magazine. Anyone who was on the internet would then go visited and it, it worked like a charm. And I was able to eventually phase out that huge advertising expense. I was spending about a thousand a month back then, which was big for me compared to the $20 to put up a website and a domain <laughs> per month. So instead of 10 grand a year, I'm spending, you know, next to nothing. So I actually, you know, I'm trying to remember what I built that with. I, I learned a software program because I didn't know HTML. I think it was Microsoft, uh, probably their first the front version page. of front page came out around that time along with whatever version of Windows was out. And so basically, as, as you know, it works just like a word processor. If you could use Word, then front page would write the code behind the scenes for you. So it wasn't much different than just using a word processor. So that's how I got it online. One thing I remember about that early site is I would get these um, CDs that were filled with little animated icons and like uh, <laughs> someone scratching a record on the turntable. So I went way over, but about 30 of these things all over the page. So it was like a traffic collision, you know, when you went <laughs> to the homepage, it just looked horrific, but I didn't know any better, you know, at the time and it, and it worked. I was able to, to advertise all of my stuff. So I had that very rudimentary basis and then I probably, well, I was always, then I was always doing, you know, selling stuff overseas on the internet. So I gained a few other skills. I got better software as time went on. But when it came time to do DN Journal, the music store had been out of business. We'd closed those in 2000 when the internet and CD burning sunk all of, sunk that industry pretty much for everybody. Yeah. So Days of Napster. Yeah, well, Napster was the very start. And I'll tell you, when I knew the writing was on the wall, we'd had a booming. I, my stores were booming because I opened them in 1985 when CDs were introduced. So what was happening is people would come in every day and they were buy, replacing their entire libraries. Oh, wow. So I specialized in used CDs because that's where the profit margin was. You only made, you couldn't make anything on new CDs because Best Buy and everybody in the world was selling those for 20 cents over cost. But you could buy a used CD and it, you know, as people brought in and double your money. Right. So people were coming in and they were carrying out stacks of CDs from my <laughs> store every day, rebuilding a library. So it, it just boomed at the start. But then technology came along and wiped it out for everybody. Now they no longer needed CDs. And, and, and the point I was getting to, you talked about Napster. The day I knew that uh, the game was over, I was um, in one wing of the house we owned at the time. And I heard, I knew a new album was coming out by Madonna on this particular day. Because new releases always came out on Tuesday. And having the story, I thought the new, new Madonna record is going to be out. So I hear, the new, I hear the new record playing. And my daughter's, I had a teenage daughter. She was a teenager at the time coming out of her bedroom and it hasn't even hit any store yet. <laughs> so I'm going, how is this possible? 
So, you know, I jumped up, I run down the hall and I said, Brittany, how did you, that's Madonna's new record. How did you get that? And she goes, she looked at me like I was a dinosaur. Of course, geez, dad, haven't you heard of Napster? And I go, hell no. What, what is Napster? And then she's showing me, you can down, you could download about anything. It ended up being piracy, of course, which they got busted for in the, in the long run. But that told me, you know, we're pretty much toast here because kids are going to be downloading music. And as if that weren't enough, then CD burners came along and everyone had a CD burner in there and, and CDs are not copy protected. So a kid might come into the store and buy one copy and then burn 20 for his friends. And I lived in a university area. So that happened all the time. So sales just plunged. And um, that was the end of the line. So there was about two years there from the end of the record stores until DN Journal started, uh, which was New Year's Day of 2003. So I had to kind of brush back up on uh, one of the programs that would write the HTML for you. So even to this day, actually the software, I'm still writing it in that same old software, the last version of that, which has long since been canceled out. But I learned to use it. I didn't want to learn anything else. And I basically just care about what content I put up there. So that's how I got it online. I um, learned, um, I like graphics a lot because they say a picture tells a story. So I try, I spent a lot of time learning more about graphics to go along with those. And I always try to use those a good bit. So, you know, it's, um, and I, the other thing is that I've never been a great delegator. I always <laughs> like to do things myself. And my wife uh, kids me because she she says tells people I'm I'm the worst boss she ever had in her life because she <laughs> trying, she was supposed to work in the company and every time she says show me how to do this and I would start to show her a couple of things going oh no here and then I like I know wave wave around the way and I start doing it. she goes how am I supposed to learn if you won't let me do anything <laughs> but that's uh, unfortunately a thing that's been uh, an issue for, for me. Forever, and it's not a good trait to have. If you can delegate something to competent <laughs> people, you should do it. But I'm just one of those characters that uh, got to pretty much do it all myself. Whether and, and so the net, the product's not necessarily the greatest that way, but I just hate relinquishing that control. That's interesting. So then you're not so you're not using WordPress then for your for DN Journal today. No, not using WordPress. Probably one of the few. It's just straight HTML. Wow. One good thing about it, and, and when WordPress became so strong, uh, people were telling me then how much Google, how well just straight HTML works with Google, and we've always gotten tremendous indexing. So I did, I did actually put a WordPress site or two up, just dabbling around with it. But I was still much more comfortable in what I learned, and I didn't right. I just was at the point where my concentration's always been writing about topics. And I, and again, I never hired anyone else to do it. So just from that little bit of time with it, I kind of just like back, back off and went back to what I knew. So I'm probably what, what is it like? Maybe one in four sites are not on front on uh, WordPress is some right. huge number that is right. But it, it and I and I think that that's a testament to the quality of content that you create. That it's you know for a lot of people it, it is about getting a structure infrastructure in place that is SEO friendly and all these other things. Versus that's not necessarily your story. Um, while yes, your content is SEO friendly, but really. Y- it was more that you focused on uh, likely more just human readable, uh, high quality content to begin yeah, with. Ab- absolutely. I'm sure that's the case. We did. And the other thing that I always did is my favorite thing to do 
has been these really in-depth feature stories over the years, um, like a, a long form magazine feature where you can really get go in depth into a person's story. And, and when I do those profiles, I usually go all the way back to when they were born. You know, what were your parents <laughs> like? Uh, what values did they instill in you? Where did you go to school? And so they're pretty long form. So Typically, anyone that I did a cover story on the last 20 years, that's the definitive article about them uh, in Google. And, you know, that usually will still to this day come up on the home page if you put their name in, unless unless it's somebody like, you know, say a Dibyank Tarakia or a Bobby a Bobbington who became billionaires, then Wall Street right. Journal's writing about them and all. But if it's not uh, if the main, if it's not someone that's so big that the mainstream press has picked up, then uh, it's pretty much the definitive article on those people. So Google loves that deep content. That's awesome. So then, Ron, in terms of DN Journal, so like, I guess now, what's the long play there for DN Journal? Is this something that you're just going to continue to do to the to the end of your days, or? Yes, pretty much so. I think I don't have. Uh, I've had um, people approach me who are interested in buying it from outside of the, the domain industry. Particularly, I remember. Um, uh, this company was based in Cincinnati, and they were already doing a um, major hosting publication. So they thought it would be a good idea to get a domain publication to go buy uh, with it. But I uh, never really had an interest in selling it because it's just um, that's what I do now. Just and I enjoy it so much. It's not like working it, which is the beauty of it. It gives you a nice revenue stream. But you just you know you're just seeing people that you love to see when you go to the conferences. You write about a topic you love to write about. So. I'm thinking, why would I ever want to give that up? And I've never had a desire to retire at all because I don't know what I would do with myself. <laughs> um, I'd probably like very much my dad's kid when he was retired or reached retirement age, he would he could never sit still. He'd be out in the backyard, like moving rocks around. He might be building a rock bed, but he's moving them somewhere else. And I go, why why are you moving this stuff all around? And he goes, I got to be doing something, you know. So I can't think of any. If I thought of something that I'd rather do, then maybe I would sell it and do something else. But the thing I think that really keeps you engaged in domains is that. It changes all of the time. You know, I've been doing it for 19 years, and you go back and look. Every it's like a roller coaster. Every year, it's something different. <laughs> New technology is changing. This there's some sort of sales boom, like China. Then there, then there's a sales crash, and then there's uh, the pandemic that we thought would make another crash, but instead created a boom. And new people come and go, companies come and go, and TLDs come and go. So it's like nothing I've ever been in, in terms of just keeping you constantly engaged in what's going on. Now, Ron, in terms of just like that aha moment where you knew like, hey, this is what this is the next thing I want to do in terms of domain investing. Like, when did that occur for you? Obviously, you had uh, the run there with the record stores and then you, that brought you into the online space. But when was that exact moment that you would say, yeah, this is what kind of turned the corner for me in terms of entering into the domain industry? Yeah, well, the thing that brought me into it was um, when the record stores closed, uh, I was trying to decide what I was going to do next because I'd been out of broadcasting for 12 years and that's a long time to be out. And I was at an age where it's really not easy to go back in, even though I had a lot of experience. I worked in major market television station. I was a sportscaster. I've been on the networks. I've covered a half dozen Super Bowls in person. I knew every athlete uh, from the 70s and 80s. 
nice. uh, right up till the time I left television. But after being out 12 years, that would be a tough thing to get back into. So I, you know, I'm thinking, I, what am I going to do here? I really didn't <laughs> know. The only thing that I knew was that the only thing of any value left when the record stores crashed was that domain name because I still had the website on it. The store was closed, the brick and mortar stores, but I could still sell stuff all over the world by email, uh, by mail and the internet. And I did that for a couple of years. But the problem was I'd gone from two revenue streams, the stores and the online, now down to one. And I had a family to raise and a daughter reaching, coming up on college age in a couple of years. So there just wasn't enough money there. So I knew I was going to have to do something else, but I wasn't sure what that was going to be. So one day in the spring of 2002, I was always, a, when, once computers came in, I was always a computer fan. So I subscribed to a lot of computer magazines. So in the spring of 02, I got a copy of PC World in and I opened the front cover and there's a big ad there that Newstar placed, who's the administrator of the .us registry. And they were announcing that they were opening the .us domain to all American citizens. Prior to that, .us was only was reserved for specific uses. It, could, it was for government, for law enforcement, and for the school systems could use it. I think there are probably a couple of others, but those were the main uses for it. And so the reason that that resonated with me is that I had, I remembered having difficulty even in 97 and 2000 when I started the new corporation that DN Journal is under having a hard time getting the name that I wanted in .com. For example, in 1997, the name of my record stores was Rock Island because it was primarily a rock and roll collectible store and I like the island motif being in Florida. But rockisland.com when I started was taken by some financial services firm and I think they were in Rock Island, Illinois or someplace like ah. that. So I couldn't get it. So and there weren't there weren't alternatives then other than net and org. That was it. And org didn't make sense to me as a nonprofit and the dot net uh, like Rick Schwartz always says is kind of invisible like uh, they just don't see it unless you're a network uh, infrastructure provider back then. So I said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do here. So the, the answer in that case was I had a slogan. We had a lot of merchandise, T-shirts and mugs and so on. And underneath Rock Island, it said a music collector's paradise. So I looked for musicparadise.com and that was available. So I took that. So until the stores folded, I operated online, had to under a different name. Uh, when I went all online, the stores were gone and it became musicparadise.com. Then the other example was when the stores went under, I started a new corporation and I knew whatever I was going to do had to be internet based. So I called it Internet Edge Incorporated ah. and internetedge.com was taken in 2000. <laughs> so um, I, I think I went, wound up with no corporate domain for a while, which wasn't that important. But then I, I see this US ad and I say, well, I'll get internetedge.us right away. Since I couldn't get the .com, I did that. <clears throat> and not knowing what I was going to do, I said, you know what I should also do? Because the, the, the .coms are so hard, think about what my skill sets are, what area I might want to go in and register some of these .us domains that are just becoming available. So that's what I did. And, and I just dabbled in a handful, no uh, inkling whatsoever that you could sell a domain name for a profit without something on it. And so I did that and I'm still kind of just like going back and forth. What am I going to do? So as I'm <clears throat> researching more on the internet, one day I stumbled upon uh, DN Forum, which was 
the place that all the domainers of the day hung out in. <clears throat> so I went there and these guys are talking about buying and selling just the domain by itself. And I go, holy cow, you mean, how can, that, how can there be any value in that? There's nothing on it. But I thought that's the greatest thing I've ever heard of. You can own the rights to a word worldwide on the internet. And having been a journalist, I understood the power of words and language, and it was just so appealing. And it just kind of blew my mind what the possibilities might be. So in that forum, I uh, kind of sat and listened and learned and made a lot of mistakes, which is typical. Uh, <laughs> you know, when you come in, I bought an awful lot of just the worst imaginable garbage you could ever dream up. And all, and all of that eventually got dropped, made no money. My wife thought I was nuts because I was in it. I came and started doing that in May 2002. After six months, I had never sold a name, but I had maxed our cards pretty much out. And she's gone. I'm going to grow. I'm, she's, I'm, going to, I'm going to end up living in a cardboard box under a bridge somewhere. <laughs> so, so a lot of pressure there. But finally, I learned enough on the forums about what kind of names you needed to get that would actually have resale value. And I totally changed what I went after. Then I started buying more, a lot more dot coms, obviously. And I, I like dot orgs, even though it wasn't right for my site. Mm. I saw a lot of uh, value in dot orgs because it's highly trusted. It's used in the medical space. A lot of people think nonprofits don't have any money. They've actually, a lot of them have a lot of money. So they have the budget to buy the appropriate name. And because .us is what attracted me to the industry in the first place, I always had an affinity for it as well. So I also bought a lot of really good .us domains at the time and still have those today. But that ended up being the three that I pretty much settled on. I did dabble, you know, as new things came, I did well, I probably did a little dot moby and lost all of that money and a little <laughs> bit of this and a little bit of that, all losses pretty much across the board. So I've pretty much concentrated on that three. Uh, but but that was the moment when I um, saw these guys in the forum buying and selling just the words by themselves. And I, to this day, I can't imagine, you know, a, a cooler business or one that was more suited just to my personal background and my interests. And then, so you go from there from being a domain investor, and then you, I guess, get this idea of, oh, wow, this industry needs a, a trade journal, a news magazine of some sort. Uh, and then you launch out into DN Journal. Now, how has DN Journal helped you level up as a domain investor or has it? Well, yes, it has tremendously because um, in the course of covering the industry, I've been to almost every major domain conference anywhere, wherever it is in the world. I've gone to all, just about all of them. And I uh, try to be really comprehensive in conference coverage. So I would sit in every single uh, session at every single conference. Well, most of the guys were out in the halls, you know, cutting deals and, um, you know, just chatting. But I'm in there. I feel like I've got an obligation to take notes on what is being said, take photos and report all that. In recent years, more recent years, probably quite a few years now, I, I got away from doing that to, to that degree where I have to do everything. I will go in every session still, get a photo, maybe take a few notes, but then I will go back out and try to, you know, hang out with some people because you learn as much, if not more in the halls as you do in the sessions. But those early years of doing that, I heard everybody who was an expert in the field. And I think I took something away from every conference that really helped me get better at what I was uh, doing with domains. 
So one thing, again, back then that Rick Schwartz always preached was have as many revenue streams as you can get going. So I had one in buying and selling domains. And back in those days, parking was a huge revenue stream. If you got good traffic domains, you could make thousands of dollars a month from the parking revenue, which has really dried up, unfortunately, the past decade. But I had, so you had that, I had parking, now I had DN Journal, so which had ab, uh, advertising revenue. So having all those things going at once, it just really became a, a more than a full-time job. <laughs> and you got out of the doghouse with your wife. Yeah, I did. Now she's happy <laughs> as a clam that I, that I blew those credit cards out back in 2002. <laughs> so then we gotta, I mean, it's, it, I feel so grateful to the industry because it's enabled me to do pretty much everything I have ever done. My daughter was a brilliant kid. We were able to send her to an Ivy League school that I never would have been able to do if it weren't for domains. She went to medical school, got a medical degree. She got an MBA. And I never could have financed all that as just a parent, you know, with on an Great. everyday income. And it's just, I mean, everything I own, I owe to the domain business. And um, I don't know what else I would have done, but I have a hard time imagining that anything would have been more rewarding for me on every front and, and the personal relationships that I made or uh, I, I can go back to my previous bill, all those years in broadcasting and in music. I still have a couple of close friends from each of those fields, but in domaining, I feel like I there's like, you know, 20 people that if I left this business today, I would still be in touch with all the time that are really just really good friends, really good people. That is awesome, Ron. Now, a little birdie told me that had you probably not gotten involved into the domain industry, you would have made a heck of a wrestler. Is that true? A wrestler? Uh, like a like a uh, like a like, fighting wrestler? Right. Okay. Well, that's not that's not quite right. I I would have made a heck of a wrestling announcer. <laughs> but as far as getting in, actually, you know, I did wrestle in high school. Oh, and, you did. Um, the reason I didn't pursue that is I would having guys half my size beat the crap out of me. And that, <laughs> that is so embarrassing when here you are, you got 80 pounds on some little dude who's about 4'11". He's got you tied up like a pretzel. And so I said, no, no, this, this, this is not going to work. Awesome. But, and you took, and you took I, the radio voice and, yeah, and took so, to the world. But I did actually have some, uh, some very close experiences in the professional wrestling field. Uh, when I came down to, well, I grew up in Ohio and um, I got into TV by coming down to Florida where they were putting a new station on the air in Sarasota. ABC was putting a new station in there. And it happened that the guy who owned the station also had radio, had two radio stations, an AM and an FM. So they had a job opening for a newscaster and a DJ. And I wanted to get out of the north, out of those cold winters in Ohio. <laughs> so I applied for that radio job. And they liked the tape. And but the thing is, they and, and it's still true today, they always say that in Florida they pay people with sunshine. You don't they don't <laughs> give you any real money, but they'll say hey, you're down here, you get the beaches, the sun, you know, it doesn't pay. Generally, most jobs don't pay comparable to what they do in the bigger cities. So at the same time, I had an offer from a little station in Western Pennsylvania, and it offered twice as much money as this one in Florida. So I hopped in the car one day since I was in Central Ohio. I drove over to Pennsylvania, and that town was just like it looked like a nuclear holocaust that hit this place. I mean, wow. the coal industry was gone. Everything was boarded up. 
And, and I just didn't know. I'm gonna, I'll work for half the money and I'll go to Florida. But I told them that. I said, look, I have a better offer, but if you'll let me work one day a week in the TV station you're putting on the air, I'll do anything you want me to do. I don't care what it is. Uh, <laughs> just get my foot in the door. I'll take the radio job for the crappy money you're offering. <laughs> so I didn't tell them that because that obviously would have been rude, <laughs> but they, they gave me the job, put me to work. But you know that that old saying to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> right. So, well, my first job, they gave me, they had to do something with me because they agreed to do it at the TV station. So between the six and 11 o'clock news every night, they would lease the studio out for local people could come in and maybe they'd tape a public interest show that, that would air then on Sunday or something like that. So one of the things that was in there a mobile home park, wanted to sell more mobile homes. So they decided they were going to produce a half hour square dancing show. <laughs> and they that's what they put in the studio between the 6th and 11. My first job was running running the camera on all these old people square dancing for an hour. And I'm going, what? <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. And here I am an old person myself, so I shouldn't make you know, make light of that, though I wouldn't be square dancing. Now, as you know, I would be break dancing all over the place <laughs> and whirling around like those kids do. But that's that got my foot in the door. And then um, I did the radio during the week. And then uh, it, everyone has to go on vacation. So the local, the, our weather, the main weather guy on TV was going to go away for two weeks. And, and so the manager comes to him and said, Ron, can you, you know how to do, can you do weather? And I said, of course, I can do weather. And even though I'd never done it in my life, I didn't know a thing <laughs> about it. I'm thinking, how hard can it be? So they let me fill in as the weatherman. And it was, it's pretty easy. You just tear stuff off the, uh, wire service and put some magnetic numbers on. We'd have computer, uh, not really advanced computers. And so you're putting magnetic numbers on the boards. So I did that. And then the sportscaster was gone, which is the job I really wanted, but they let me fill in there. And then they created for the first time a weekend newscast and they gave me that. So that was my first full-time thing was being the news anchor and just by myself. It was a 15 minute newscast. And I do the news, weather, sports on the weekends. Then finally, the um, weather guy got a job, I think he went to San Francisco, and I became the full-time weatherman, which wasn't the gig that I wanted, but I was on every day now. Then the sportscaster, uh, Andrea Kirby, was hired by WJZ in Baltimore, and later she went to ABC. Andrea was the first female uh, broadcaster on a national network. She was on ABC's college scoreboard wow. shows after she went from WJZ Baltimore up to New York City to the network. So anyhow, when Andrea left, I told the manager I want that. I want to be the sportscaster. And that's always, I played sports. I love sports. So I got that job. And that's what I did the next 16 to 18 years in television. So where that brings me to wrestling, which is where what we got so far <laughs> off track on, is that once I became the sportscaster, there's a local high school there in Sarasota called Cardinal Mooney, and they were the state champions in their class that year. So I was going out to Cardinal Mooney and uh, doing stories on them throughout that run. And their head coach was a guy named John Heath, who happened to be both a pro former professional wrestler for many, many years and a very oh. good one. And he also was the professional wrestling promoter for championship wrestling from Florida, which was one of the biggest regional uh, operations in the country back in those days. So John asked me if I would become the ring announcer for his live matches at Roberts Arena there in Sarasota. Uh, so I got, I did that. 
So then I got to meet all the wrestlers as they came through, which are the most colorful bunch of people, not just as, I mean, obviously it's all an act, but the people are pretty much genuinely nuts also <laughs> behind that. It's not an act, <laughs> that part of it. You're around, 90% of them are just like crazy or they probably wouldn't be in that, that business. <laughs> and I had so many experiences doing that that were so much fun and some not so much fun. You, you know, you're from Texas, so you know Terry Funk. Terry Funk, I do. Name. Terry I Funk do. was a world champion, and um, he was like uh, he was a world champion for many years. And his brother Dory Jr. was a world champion. But anyhow, um, one of the nights I was announcing, and I'd bought a new sports coat for the occasion. Terry <laughs> Funk was in the main event with I didn't even know who he was wrestling because that that was what happened was such a blur. But I climb up in the ring to announce everyone, and I announced whoever the opponent was. And then I said, and in this corner, no, before I even got to Terry's introduction, I just announced the other guy, Terry runs up behind me, yanks the microphone, not just out of my hand, but he rips the microphone off the cord. I'm standing there holding a dangling <laughs> wire and he runs across and I'm just standing there like a fool. He runs across the ring and starts beating the opponent in the head with my microphone. And then they, they did a thing back then where they would slice their forehead <laughs> to draw blood. So somewhere in the little melee, one the guy cuts himself who's getting beaten up. And there's blood going all over the place. Terry gets it all over himself. He probably cut himself too. He comes staggering back across the ring. I did not have the common sense to get out of the ring. I, just, I had backed up into a corner. So Terry comes stumbling across the ring, grabs me in a bear hug and just rubs his whole head down the front of my new sports coat. And he just goes <laughs> down, like, sinks down to the floor and lays out like he's passed out. Meanwhile, I'm looking at my jacket and I'm going, who's going to pay for this? <laughs> and uh, I, I, I have no doubt that John Heath put him up to doing that. Uh, oh, as a rib because they loved ribbing each other and so that was um, <laughs> probably the most single memorable moment but there were a lot of them man oh man and and there you have it and so now ron now based upon all of the these experiences that you've had like how did that play into your domain investing or did it or has it I mean, and i guess the better question is does it still even play a part till this day Oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. I think everything as a domain person, everything you do and everything you experience is like um, fodder for possible domain registrations or purchases. Uh, and I've always said that as advice too. When people come in, I said, uh, concentrate on something you know a lot about inside out because you're going to know words and terms that are unique to that particular field that a lot of the other people out there buying domains may not know that that term has value in a specific field. So I have tons of sports related domains and I've sold a lot of those uh, in and out through the years. Uh, tons of media domains, having worked in broadcasting, probably more than anything else, all kinds of news-related domains and reporting domains. If a magazine comes in the mail from uh, something that I'm interested in, like movies, uh, classic movies, then I've got a lot of things in, you know, down that direction. And that's, again, what to me makes it so much fun. If, if you're just picking up a newspaper or a magazine or you're going out to a show or you're, anything you do, you go to a concert, you're thinking... At least I do. And I know I'm not unique in this because I other domain people tell me the same thing. You're thinking about, oh, that's a, that would make a good domain name, those words. And then you grab your phone and check and see if it's available. And I'm always startled sometimes when I think, oh, wow, that's a really good term. And I look and it's available in one of the three extensions that I like to buy. 
though, I'll, you know, I'll pick them up on the spot. So absolutely. Um, and I had pro wrestling.us for a while. I think that might oh, wow. have been one that I sold. So other wrestling related domains and, uh, I still got all kinds of baseball domains, football domains, uh, like kickoff, um, us. And I've always, what, one thing I love about having all those Frank Schilling once said that he th- thought of every one of his domains as a project that he might want to do. And though he knew he would never get around to them. So I have like a thousand plus projects, but there, <laughs> if I ever wanted to do something else, I would have the right domain name. I'm convinced for anything else that I might want to do. That's awesome. And so then in terms of your portfolio size now, I know that you've mentioned that you invest in .us names as well as .com. Like, what would you say the distribution would be in terms of the extensions that you invest in today? Is it mostly .com, .us? Like, what's that breakout? Probably, probably about equal common U.S. because I have so many U.S. from the early days, one-word ones and three-letter ones. And the way that I got all those, it, it wasn't on the initial registration because when uh, on that extension, when I first learned about it in that um, magazine article, it had already been opened. It was announcing the opening of the extension. So they had already had the land rush and the situation where people could bid on terms. So uh, really most of the great one word domains were taken before I even learned that it was open or, or that I even knew enough to register the right stuff. So where I got all of mine was, um, two years later, because initially .us was a two-year registration term, not one year. So what the first, very first drops occurred in the spring of 2004. And by then I had learned a lot about what kind of terms sell, you know, commercial things to get. So what was very fortunate, there's a guy named Dan Rubin that a lot of your listeners probably know from justdrop.com. Dan had created an inexpensive script that worked with Enom, which was a registrar that a lot of us used in those days because they were very um, good about wanting to foster relationships with investors. So they had a great uh, Pulse Tahura owned it then, and it was built really almost for the investors. So you could take this script, attach it with Enom, and then just load in names that you knew were dropping, and that script would run at drop time, and you could just sit there and watch names fall into your Enom account as it went down. So I got some fabulous geo domains, one word domain. I just sold MVP.us last week. One of my favorite ones, I probably sold it too low. I sold it for $5,000, but it was going to a nonprofit thing for women's uh, abuse. And so I let that one go, but I have, I mean, just tons of names like that. I sold quick.us last week for about $5,000. And that's typical when you're in the U.S., uh, category. You might run from, I would say vast majority of them run from 500 to $5,000. So uh-huh. anyhow, to your original point, I have, I would say ComUS about even, and the .org's not many because you got to be really careful on what you right. pick there, uh, since they're only suitable for certain fields. And uh, as far as uh, the number, I had at one point, I would say at the peak, I had over 7,000 domains total. Whoa. But this is in the days when uh, you're making a lot of money parking domains. Right. And a lot of those domains paid not only paid for themselves, but also generated a profit. But obviously your renewal bill is 50 grand a year just to <laughs> renew all those names. So when parking went away to uh, people will say that it's not dead. And I'm sure people with really good names that really draw traffic, you know, they're fine. But a lot of, there's a lot of this stuff outside of premium that no longer paid anything. 
Right. So I let all that stuff drop over the years. So I'm down to the point now, I probably have about 1,200 names. But the 1,200 that I like, I like really well. I almost, I rarely ever drop one now because they're all things I know have good commercial value. And that's a much smaller nut to cover is a registration on 1,000 names than 7,000. Right. So that, that's where I'm at on it now. So then how many domains, I guess, in a given year do you sell or a month on average? Well, I, this year I've sold about three dozen domains. I sold a ton of .us domains this year, the most I've ever sold, which has been huh. really encouraging to me because they've uh, lagged seriously for all those years. Right. The big problem was for with .us was that it was reserved for so long. So .com came out of the gate and was really the only smart choice uh, for commercial. Everyone gra uh, gravitated because the other two things didn't really have a commercial meeting. So .com had a massive head start and everybody, not just in the US, but worldwide, that was their choice. So by the time .us was available for someone to register, .com had been in, in place for 10 years. So, um, and the, and I've always felt, I've always felt that it was such a natural for anyone in America, any business, any entity, if you can't get the .com should be your first choice. But to me, it would be the best next best option. So, um, anyhow, I'll, uh, I've held those through all these years because another good thing about them, they're inexpensive to renew. Unlike, uh, some, uh, some have really high renewal fees. It's a very stable fee. So it's, uh, they pay for them. I always had enough of a revenue stream for them to pay for themselves, even though it wasn't a big stream. So I could afford to just keep them. But now I think it's been part of the whole pandemic with people rushing online and they initially want the .com because you should want the .com. But what they find out is they, they can't get the word or term or multi, even multi-word term in a lot of cases at a price that they can afford because 156 million .coms have been registered. And there's right. only 170,000 words in the entire dictionary, like 1% of the number of domains that are there. So I think that's why you're seeing uh, some alternatives starting to take off, like look at .io, the tech right. industry ad adopted .io in a huge way. Uh, .ai is doing really well. .co is, which is a CCTLD, obviously repurposed. Uh, I've seen some big aftermarket sales on that. And so uh, the pandemic has had the effect of raising, I think, just about all boats. And um, for me, it's just been mind-boggling with the with the .us. Uh, just I've sold four of them this week alone, and virtually every single one to a small business end user who. Uh, were, were priced out of any possibility of getting the com or even the IO and some of the other alternatives for that matter. But I still have very little in them, even after renewing them. My best ones for, let's say, 04, where, where we're at now, 20, 17 years, I've still got 100 bucks in them. And my sales all average well above that. The, the ones I really don't care about, I would never, I never sell anything under like about 500 and that stuff if I just assume see it go. Right. Usually the top end runs about five, though we've seen some five uh, figure .us sales this year. A couple of 20,000. I think it was yellow is 20,000. Uh, uh, one of the uh, old time domainers sold signal for 12,005. So it's approaching um, a space where it's doing better. So that's, um, that's so, so anyhow, to me, I mean, having been invested in it so long, it's been really encouraging. And, and there'll be another piece of advice. I, what I think triggers that. I don't know if you want to go to that now or come back to yeah, it later. But no, I, we can do that. Well, what I want the other point that I wanted to make that was a, a big catalyst 
in causing those sales to start happening was that I went to all buy it now pricing, which I had resisted forever. But Andrew, uh. All and then the other part of it was Andrew Alleman had, uh, and I have credited Andrew for this personally and, and multiple times since, he had written about the other important thing is make sure you get your names in the, in the GoDaddy registration stream, which means be, get them on a platform that GoDaddy will show those as alternates. When someone goes to GoDaddy to register a domain, and they're obviously the 800-pound gorilla in red, new registrations, if they type in the name and it's not available, they'll show them these aftermarket names that are available on their platform. And so he said, get your names there. And the other half, the buy it now thing, like I said, I had resisted because we all feel like if we do that, we're going to leave money on the table. Right. And so what happens is you get in this uh, pointless dance where you say, <laughs> make an offer. And the offer is always 50 bucks. Or maybe if they're really feeling, uh, you know, like they got a lot of extra money in the pocket, 200 bucks, you know. So it's just <laughs> like, and then you come back and uh, it's, it's just like trying to buy, a, you know, a, a bracelet in Tijuana or something. It's just not the way <laughs> Americans do are used to doing business. Certainly not small business people. It's such a turnoff to them. But I never could, never could just quite make that leap. And finally, early on in the pandemic, I'm going. I'm sitting here and I'm looking at these demands. And, I, and at that point, early on, I'm worried about is this thing going to crash the economy? And um, so I thought, you know. I'm just going to go through these names. I'm, I've got enough experience to have a really good idea what they are worth, what they should go for. And the part about getting them in GoDaddy's stream, actually, I didn't have to do anything there because GoDaddy bought Uniregistry, which is where almost all of my names are. And my names were in the Uniregistry market. So now GoDaddy has those. And all of a sudden, overnight, when GoDaddy bought them, all those names are in GoDaddy's stream. And I swear overnight from the point and this within a week, I had changed to buy it now and had gotten them in GoDaddy overnight. My sales tripled and have not stopped since then. It's been well over a year now where I've this year, I've sold more dollar volume than I did the entire year last year, which was a pretty wow. good year. And I've still got months to go. And most people I talk to are, are saying the same thing. And regardless of what they have, whether it's comms or IOs or, or what it is, it's just a, been an amazing market. Wow. So then really getting them, so getting them in that, that, that buyer stream then is what's doing it for you. Plus, you know, I would assume because the other side of that equation is also making sure that you price realistically. Uh, when yeah. you when you're doing buy it now, you know, because some people will say, well, I, I did that very thing, Ron. I, right. I got into the buyer stream. But, yeah, you put a two word at something like fifty thousand dollars buy yeah. it now. And it's like, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. That's exactly right. In fact, I, there's one guy I, I don't mention any names, but he's putting one word dot US domains out there and he has a bet buy it now on it of three hundred thousand dollars. Not going to happen on your wildest, wildest dreams, you know, so <laughs> why even bother with that? Um, so, yeah, the pricing realistically is is really important. You know, what's been a really amazing to me, though, the other point about that going to buy it now is I think I haven't priced right. And I, I feel like, you know, they're going well, but I could always adjust the price up pretty easily. I have so many. Um, but what I have found that has really flabbergasted me is I do not get offers anymore. They just pay the buy it now price. Wow. And that tells me that 
I was right about 20 years to the right idea, but I was right in the idea that small business people don't want to deal with all that. If you give them a fair price, and and again, I know small businesses and medium business because I operated them. I operated uh, brick and mortar ones. So I have an idea of what budgetary restraints are and what a kind of price would be affordable or considered out of reason by a lot of small businesses. So it's just the way that it works now is just the most beautiful thing. I'll get an email and said, uh, such and such has been purchased. We've got the money. It's already been paid for. They just checked it out um, through Aftonic or GoDaddy or Unique and do it from anywhere as long as it's in that stream or Dan, Dan.com. I just sold one this week too. And they're super, super fast. So I recommend Dan highly as well. Uh, but you just get an email and they, they pay out so fast now too, usually within 24 right. hours. Um, so it's just like, I, I'm so glad to make offer and trying to haggle back and forth. Cause I think of all the hours I wasted doing that and how few times you actually get to a sale there. And they think they're, they're afraid they're going, they're getting screwed or cheated or something. And you're afraid you're leaving money on the table and they don't know enough about domains and no value. But if, if you just make it easy for them, like they go into Office Depot and they want a desk that's 600 bucks, they go in to put down their 600 bucks and take their desk home. And that's what they want to do because those people are usually one or two people, mom and pop, running a business that keeps them working sometimes seven days a week. They don't have time if they want to get right. online and, you know, to spend three days or a week going back and forth. It's just not worth their time to do it. Now, I don't, you know, I'm not making this advice to someone who's got 25,000, maybe maybe even above five or 10,000. Maybe you leave a lot of those at make offer because maybe you, there are $5,000. Rick Schwartz would always say there's a, you know, there are a lot of $5,000 domains that could, to the right buyer, you could sell for 100,000 possibly. But I think when you get down that level, if you're selling under five, you go buy it now. Then if you're really one of these guys, uh, and a lot of your listeners are, who have really good premium names, then this advice doesn't necessarily apply to you. You, you, you know, you, then you got a much better chance of selling them the other way, perhaps. Right. Now, do you compensate for the, the difference in the fees? So the commission fee structure, um, you know, after Nick versus a Dan. So when you consider pricing, are you considering, Hey, I'm adding an extra 20% because I want to cover or offset pricing. Yeah, absolutely. And and that was the way I got around the thing. Um, GoDaddy, of course, charges 20%. And you undoubtedly, you know, you've heard all the complaints about that. Oh, that's too <laughs> high, this, that, and the other. But they have proven that they make the sales. So is it worth it to you to let someone make 20% on that end if they're going to bring you a sale? particularly if they can do it, if you adjust that into your pricing strategy. So it, it makes no sense to me to, uh, like Dan is only 9% and 5% if you bring the lead, but you can't really put stuff all over the internet at five different prices or three different prices. CEDO, I think, is about 15%. So you can't do that. So what I do is I look at what's the price that I need to be at and can afford to give up 20 on it and be happy with what I get. So that's how I price it. And if it sells through one of the other venues where the uh, commission is lower or through my own landers, most of my three letter domains are on my own custom landing pages. Um, I don't um, really, uh, they're on the sites, they're in the GoDaddy stream, but as far as the lander, like they'll see it, they'll see it listed if you put uh, say CBS in 
but as far as if they type in the location with the extension, they'll, and this is only in .us and only on three letter domains, they'll land on a lander. So if it comes to you directly, then you pay nothing. So then that 20% you figured in is just gravy on the side. Got it. Got it. Now that makes, that makes perfect sense. And so now how did you, back in the day, how did you manage 7,000 domains? Like that seems like a lot. And has a lot of domains and as in an Excel spreadsheet, and I think I only made one mistake where I lost domains um, because I failed to do so, maybe sort it properly or whatever, but I'll sort them by date. And in Excel, you can sort by any field you want, right? So I typically do it by date so I can always see when they're coming up for renewal. The one mistake I made, I and I was happy that I made it, was on some .biz domains that I dabbled <laughs> in those. And when I lost those, I go, oh, and I'm, I'm going to offend the registry here probably, but that, they just weren't working on the aftermarket. So I didn't, that didn't matter. And I was just glad that it wasn't some, a handful of valuable names. There was some software that was starting to appear around them where you could manage it, manage portfolios and software. I, I tell you, though, even with that many, I didn't have a terribly hard time because you could look at it each day since they're sorted and know right. what's coming up for renewal. The biggest problem was cash flow because with domains, as you know, it's, it's an, illiquid, an illiquid investment. Most people are only selling 1% to 2% of their portfolio in a given right. year. This year, I'm doing about double that, which I'm just thrilled by, but that couple of percent that you're selling, you don't know how they're going to come in. It could be a cluster one month, then you may not have anything for two or three months. Meanwhile, your renewals are popping up. You got to have cash on hand to do those. So when you're talking about that many of them and you get swamped with a, a bunch of renewals at once, you could get caught at, without a lot of cash at the wrong time. That was the only thing that, that I can ever look back on and say, that's the only thing I found difficult about that, it's certainly a lot easier now with just over a thousand is pretty much a snap to track in a spreadsheet. Yeah, definitely. And then I guess, do you, do you, you know, cause some domain investors, they look and say, okay, Hey, I always want to be 30 days, 60 days, a quarter ahead. Like what is your philosophy when it comes to renewals? Is that something that you just handle on a daily or weekly basis or yeah, no, I, further I down actually, the timeline? Um, I actually renew pretty much very late um, because I'm confident that I'm not going to miss them. And you have a 30-day grace period anyhow, which I've rarely ever missed and had to go into. So I'll, I'll typically re renew them about a week ahead uh, because I'm always thinking, particularly now that I'm selling a lot of these buy it nows at a, at a quick clip, wow. um, why renew it when you may sell it next, you know, next week? Or why renew it early? Though honestly, that in in the long run that doesn't pan out that much. Because if it's that close and someone buys it, I typically renew it for them before right. I send it over, just as a courtesy. Because I'm not going to have them get a domain and find they got to pay eight or ten bucks, you know, right away after it. But I haven't felt like a need to get way out ahead. I, some people may feel that need this month because of the price rise and .com just went up. Uh, wholesale price on September one. Right. So if you had a ton of .com domains you might have wanted to register a whole bunch of those before the price increase. But I, I actually just found out today what my wholesale cost was. It's the first time I've done a dot-com renewal uh, <laughs> in registry. And I found my price, you guys get different prices depending on how big their portfolios. Right. But at my price, it only went up like the, the 50 cents, uh, maybe 52 cents, which is that's what the whole wholesale was. Most registrars will take that opportunity to make it a dollar increase. And then it's, a, then it's another big profit item for them. But uh, that was nice. I, I appreciated seeing that. And to me, that's um, 
makes me think highly of the registry when they're not passing along any of that other than exactly right. what they're being charged and they're keeping you where you've always been in terms of profit margin. No, that that is uh, an excellent point. And, and I think uh, a lot of domain investors were, uh, I think there were many choices to be made, um, especially rolling around September 1st with, do you renew before this date or do you just deal with it? And obviously, I mean, if you have more than a, a handful or even a couple of hundred demands, it, it certainly does make sense um, when you look at it at an annualized cost of saying, okay, hey, if I can actually renew these out for another year and I've got a couple of hundred, a couple of a thousand that I can actually do that and save the money, great. Um, and, and I know that there are some that that we're actually doing multi-year and so to try to take right. advantage of that. But again, it becomes, do you tie up your cash flow now to do that in hopes of selling? And you don't know whether or not you're going to sell. You'll sell at some point. It's just a matter of when and how long um, is it going to take to get around to doing that? Exactly. When I start thinking about that, I always think of Mike Mann, who has 300,000 domains to right. manage. And so I look at me myself and I go, well, the, the dot-com increase doesn't really affect me at all. I don't care about it. It's not enough money to worry about. But with 300,000 domains, you're talking about a $150,000 increase right. in one whack. So that's a lot of, a lot of money. Definitely. But, yeah. So it all, it all depends on um, how many you've got to deal with. Definitely. Now, does it, now obviously you get you have an interesting seat on the bus in terms of dnjournal.com. So does that often impact your pricing or you just really don't even pay attention to it in terms of how you price your own domains? Um, it does, obviously, because uh, doing that domain sales report, I'm reporting on thousands, the exact number that thousands of domains sold for each, uh, every time, every bi-weekly, every time that report comes out. So I see that data constantly. So I definitely use that as a reference point. It can be really difficult though, because, uh, you know, you const, const, people are always saying on blogs or in forums, they say, how did that domain sell for $5,000 or 10,000? <laughs> right. And I have names that are way better. And there are things you scratch your head on, but it, it all depends on the buyer who sees value, but what I'm still confused by to this day, okay, the buyer sees this value in some name that appears to make no sense. How does the seller know that um, right. has value? Because some of these things, the, the uh, you know, they couldn't possibly know that that means anything. Some of the, the names, or maybe they could, I don't know. You know, the guys like Ken Jennings on Jeopardy knows the answer to everything. So <laughs> I guess these guys who are the real pros, maybe they know they, every term, uh, they got a handle on what it is, but, um, it, it's, um, I, I think generally though, you get a pretty good idea and that's, uh, uh, other devices just look at sales that have happened. That was the whole purpose of that sales column. When I started it back in 2003, it wasn't to track every sale because that's impossible. And even, right. even today, uh, people ask me what percentage of the market does that reflect? No one knows because most of these companies in the space are private and they don't release all of their data. We Most private transactions don't get released and the biggest transactions don't get released. They're always subject to NDA. So what I've always told people is what we get is a sampling of the overall market. If I had to guess, I'd say maybe we're getting 10 or 15% of all the sales that are happening. If that, that may be too generous. But it does, what I wanted to do is give people specific examples 
uh, with all the publicly reported sales of how much exactly how much a specific name sold for. So it's meant to be an educational tool and still is to this day, not a comprehensive um, uh, catalog of every sale because no one has that. None of us do, but it, uh, it, by it gives you an a way to not only kind of price individual names but spot larger trends in the market what kinds wow. of what class of names is selling a lot now what tlds are selling and that that comes through very clearly i think and it all goes back to the um uh, classes in statistics where they would say if you have a jar of jelly beans and you reach and take a handful out if you take that handful and separate them out, it's going to be pretty representative of the dispersal of those same colors within the jar of jelly beans. It won't be exact, but it's a pretty good idea. And I think that's what the sales reports give people and it helped them um, with their pricing, both buying and selling. Yeah, and, and looking at the sales, re the report for year to date for uh, 2021, I mean, it seems we, we've definitely turned a corner as opposed to, or when in comparison to 2020, um, it, it seems like it's night and day different here. Yeah, you, one point you can just quickly look at, you can look at that year-to-date top 100 chart and see how far down the six-figure sales go. In previous years, they may have stopped, say that maybe the top 50 were six and down. Now we're already, I think we're well past that point with lots of months still to go. And I haven't seen that since like the heyday. There were a few years back, um, like in the VC era when they were pouring money in, when the entire chart was six figures. Number one, you could have a six-figure sale and not even be one of the top 100. Oh, wow. This year, we're going to come pretty close to the entire higher chart. It's going to take six figures to get on the all extension or, or pretty close to it, I think, with the time that we've got left. And just, just this summer, which summer had always been the slow period, you know, right. businesses are, people are on vacation, you know, business, so businesses are kind of slowing down a little bit. They not don't have everyone on hand, but this summer has just blown up with domain sales. And, and I think it's that how many of the brick and mortar stores just got hammered so bad right. in this pandemic? They just, they can't do business and they can't do it. Now they, they I mean, there's some of them are doing it, but it's really hard to do business safely. So I think the, the message that they have to be online has been hammered in once and for all. There is no denying it. Even, even when COVID goes away, they can never take that chance again. They've got to have an online presence as an insurance policy um, that if something like this happens again, which it will sooner or later, hopefully not for another hundred years, but the way the world is going and these things more, who knows, but um, it has been just lit, lit a fire under the domain business and created recognition in areas on Main Street where there really wasn't recognition. Now there, uh, I get questions from small business people now, and I'm, I answer a lot of them before they buy a domain because it's all new to them. And I, and I talk, what are, what are you doing? So I got to get a website up. Uh, my store <laughs> business is like I've lost 50% of my business, but I can sell this stuff online. You know, so it's uh, selling um, itself is a whole different topic. And because uh, now you're now you got to find something you can sell that Amazon's not caring. And right. Uh, so that's a difficult world, too. But if you've got a, a, a found a niche for yourself, then um, you got to take it online or if you're a service provider for people to contact you, you need to be there and tell your story online. The, the common thing I hear people within the business say is that this, the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of the internet and the 
traffic going to do that to get online by at least five years beyond what it would have been under normal circumstances? It's like it brought us 26 or 27, or 2026, 20, 2027 arrived five or six years early in that process. Wow. Yeah. And it, and it that's what it seems to be. You know, 2020 will be known as that year of many things, but definitely for the online space and likely is and it played into the hands of many domain investors. And it's this is that the online became necessity. Um, and 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 it doesn't appear to be moving backwards. And so with that, I mean, wrapping things up now, Ron, like where do you believe with how things have shaped up thus far with 2021? I mean, do you think that this is an opportunity that this that this kind of run continues on into 2022 or you think that it'll kind of slump off? I do think it will uh, run for some time to come. There's everything goes in cycles. And there's the old saying that trees don't grow to the sky. So sooner or later, <laughs> it's not going to keep growing at the pace. And it can't keep growing at this pace. Nothing can keep growing at a crazy pace. But when you look at how many people are offline, and I saw something the other day that half of the businesses in America still have no web presence, that's still a lot wow. of room for growth. And we're not even talking about less developed countries that are getting online as well, where it's even more important for them to be online because it's much more affordable. Uh, and, they, and in remote areas, they can reach people that they can't reach because they live in too small of an area. So I would think, well, I would be surprised if it didn't run a good solid couple of years more. And the only thing I could see, if there was a huge dislocation in the general economy, like there was in 2008 when the mortgage uh, crisis right. took down everything and people were taking money out of the bank and putting it in their mattress, under their mattress, <laughs> crazy stuff like that, afraid, afraid that we're going to hit another depression. Um, if there was a situation like that where money was really precious and difficult to get, then people have to cut corners everywhere, including domains. But if the, and then the economy doesn't have to keep booming. If it, if it can move along at a reasonable pace, of course, one thing the government did is pump liquidity into the market. So we didn't have that cash crisis that we had the last time. This is what right. I feared and most of us feared at the start of the pandemic that that would happen. So that uh, I'm no financial expert by any means, but you have to figure pumping all this cash in is going, we're seeing some inflationary effects now. But how bad those will be, we don't know. I remember a time when uh, mortgage rates were like 18% right. uh, during the Jimmy Carter era. You know, inflation was just can just go through the roof and drive interest rates nuts. So there are things out of our hands like that. But if the environment doesn't change significantly in the general economy from where we are now, there's a lot of people that still need to get online. And there are a lot of companies that are online that need to get a lot better at what they're doing, um, you know, with their processes so they can sell more, so people can interact with them more, maybe get on social media more. But if you do that, make sure that the domain name is your primary presence because as social media, if you depend on them, they've been known to pull the plug on you. If you run afoul of them in any way, shape, or form, then people can't reach you at all. So always emphasize your domain as your number one point of contact. And speaking of, you know, just coming online or getting online, you've actually brought another online publication online, which is uh, AD, ADN.us. And so, like, I guess help us understand, like, what, what do you got going there? What, and what brought this about? ADN.us is American Domain Names, is the name of the site. And that was um, 
something else that I probably wouldn't have gotten around to doing if it weren't for the <laughs> pandemic and us not traveling and going to shows. So I had extra time on my hands. But I always had in the back of my mind that Sense.us brought me into the business. And I still have a belief in the TLD, even though it's not, uh, I don't think it's ever been promoted. And the message of exactly what it is and what it represents has been put out there. So I thought, you know what, I've got some time now. I think I'm going to do a site, an informational site devoted just to .us so I can tell the .us story, uh, why it is where it is now, what it represents. A lot of people don't know what it is, that it's America's official CCTLD. They don't know all the people that are using it. I, so I use use examples. Uh, I did a, do stories like the one on Aldi.us, which is the third biggest grocery chain in America and the fastest growing in America with 2,500 stores, they use Aldi.us. Wow. The biggest commercial real estate company in the world uses .us in America, CBRE.us. They're based in Dallas, Texas. But CBRE, they operate globally, but they use the local CCTLD to personalize their business operations wherever it is they operate. So they would be on the DE in Germany. They're everywhere, and they'll use the IT in Italy and America. They follow that form and use the .us. So also, I'll show use examples like that. There's, I'm doing some profiles, just like the profiles I did in DN Journal. I'm doing profiles on the original .us guys that were there when I was who've invested in it and stayed with it all these years, uh, still believing in it, even though I think most of them have made some money. It's just that your returns would have been greater if you had put them in .com. You never know what your return is going to be on investment. Right. But we've just felt that uh, someday people were going to get it, particularly small business people. I just look at it as comms the right choice if you can get it. But today, with how many are registered, you're most small business is going to have to consider an option. So what's your best option? And we can argue that point. But for me, if you're an American citizen, to me, it's just like the German citizens. They go to .de, British citizens go to .uk. It's their natural. In Germany, .de is preferred over the .com. It's used more. That's probably not going to happen many other places. But to me, it just makes so much sense. And so that's what it is. It's a news and information site. It was launched on the 4th of July, which I thought was the ideal <laughs> date to launch a, uh, a site devoted to American domain names. So I'll do what I can to try to just tell the story. It's not a site that is really meant for investors other than you can use that site to show potential end users. I want to educate mm. small businesses and end users. Um, I don't, uh, you know, I don't really, I mean, I care what investors do because I want them all to be successful, including the U.S. guys, but I'm not writing it for them. And you can see from the writing, it's supposed to be more educational. And um, I'm hopeful that now that uh, GoDaddy has taken administration of .us, that they will do more to tell that story as well. Newstar had it before. And of course, GoDaddy bought Newstar last year. Right. GoDaddy's got a lot of balls in the air, but they got a lot of people too. <laughs> so um, I would love to see them promoting .us on the homepage and uh, tell on their homepage, tell people what it is. It's America CCTLD. CEDO just uh, had .us featured on their homepage for, I don't know if it's still there. It's been up for a solid month though. And CEDO, of course, is the dominant giant in the CCTLD space. So they understand it quite well and um, have been putting that out in front of you. Maybe that's been part of the reason that it's helping too. But that's what ADN.us is all about. 
Uh, it won't be of interest to everyone, but if you're an American, and, uh, and also it's not limited just to Americans, you can register.us if you do provide a business or service to Americans. So ah. an interesting driver of .us, a lot of the buyers are non-US companies. In fact, quick.us was bought by a company in Colombia. I haven't, uh, I don't think they put a site up yet, so I don't know what they're going to do with it, but it will be to, I know they were uh, some sort of a, it's called Quick Help was the corporation. But anyhow, they're going to serve Americans and they, those people think in CCTLD terms overseas. So they, they recognize the value there a lot quicker, a lot of times than American citizens. Awesome. Well, then last but not least, I mean, is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners in case somebody says, hey, you know, I want to get in contact with Ron. I've got a couple of questions just about your journey or .us domains. Like, how should they contact you? You think we've still got listeners here after this hour and a half that we've been... (laughs) I'm sure you do, because who would not want to sit and listen to us talk for an hour and a half? I'll bet that uh, every single one's there. And to them, I would just say, um, I'm, e- I'm easy to find. Uh, editor at dnjournal.com, Ron at ronjackson.com, and now editor at adn.us. And um, that, that's, that's the place you'll find me. Well, awesome. Well, with that, we're out of time. So, Ron, thank you again for joining us today and sharing your entrepreneurial and your domaining experience. Thank you, Alvin. I knew the time was going to fly. I knew it was going to be a blast. <laughs> I, really, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I hope people who listen got something out of it as well that will help them on their domaining journey. Great. And with that, thank you listeners for tuning in to Kickstart Commerce, where we share search marketing and domain name strategies to help grow your business. Please subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or Podbean. Last but not least, please visit kickstartcommerce.com to subscribe to the newsletter sharing tips and tricks about the disciplines of digital strategy. Thanks. And that's all for now. 